Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks so much for the questions and comments. Keep sending them in, please. Remember to subscribe to this podcast. And if English is not your first language, you can get a translated version of the podcast via the YouTube auto-translate function into 195 different languages. One more notice, please remember to support the companies that empower this podcast, Harborside, Homegrown, and Liberty Clothing. Today, we're going to be exploring the connection between cannabis and laughter. And one of the reasons that I decided to, to have this topic is because I've been doing a lot of research into the role of cannabis in ancient societies. There's this new generation of archaeologists and historians who are not blinded by stigma and aren't afraid that they're going to ruin their careers. And they're beginning to find out really new and interesting things about cannabis in ancient societies. Um, uh, but there's challenges. Uh, sometimes it's really difficult to figure out exactly what plant the ancient records are talking about. There's hundreds of different names for various different psychoactive plants in the historical record. And what they found was the best way to sort it out, the best clue that they could find to figure out what was really cannabis is they would go through the historical literature and look for mentions of the laughing plant. And in almost every time when they found a description of a plant that made people laugh, that plant has ended up being cannabis. So um, today, our guest is uniquely qualified to explore this ancient connection between cannabis and laughter. He's one of the great comedic actors of his generation. He's also a cannabis farmer, also an activist, and a very dear friend of mine, Jim Belushi. Really exciting news. I want you to watch his trailer for his new show on Discovery, Growing Belushi. will be debuting August 19th at 10 p.m. If you love cannabis, make sure that you catch this show. Hey, Jim, how are you? <laughs> It's so good to see you, my friend. Yes, sir. I'm doing good. I'm doing very good. Excellent. Excellent. Good to hear that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I've been, uh, I've been, you know, going through all of this research and it's been, it's been really fascinating. One of the things that I've learned is that ancient Greece, the, the cradle of Western civilization, the place where democracy and, and maybe even all the great philosophy of Western civilization sprang from uh, had not just cannabis, but many other psychoactive plants that they incorporated into their medicine. Into oh, Stephen, Stephen, please. All that mythology, you know, came out of some kind of peyote that they were doing back then. Yeah. All the images and the oracle. I mean, you know, when I was doing ayahuasca, I saw the oracle. <laughs> Exactly. Sure, that great influence on the Greeks, right? Yeah, it makes you makes you think about them in a in a totally different way. Um, yeah, uh, and like all the symposia, uh, the the big um, theatrical festivals, 
if you take a look at the menus, they had all these, all these cannabis cookies that they were eating and the wine, you know, everybody knows about Dionysus and the wine and well, the wine actually turns out to have been spiked wine. It wasn't really just grape wine. It was actually a form of tincture and the Greeks would soak cannabis in the wine, and soak some other plants in there too, and then come up with this very, very potent wine. So potent that they had to, to cut it 19 parts of water to one part of this wine. And then they would stay up all night laughing and howling. Oh my. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Dionysian time, man. I mean, that's what's great about uh, um, Bacchus is uh, the parade in New Orleans during the Mardi Gras. Uh, Bacchus is, uh, I think, isn't that the, the uh, Italian version of the, uh, Dionysus, yeah, exactly. Bacchus and Dionysus are the same, right? The same gods of, of, of you know fruit and grapes and love and fun and yeah, they were totally uh, rolling joints in the back of the forum, man. <laughs> <laughs> so get this um, one one of my favorite stories that comes out of that is uh, there's this play um, written by the great Greek playwright Aristophanes. And the name of the play is Wealth. And it tells the story of these places called the Temples of Asclepius. Temples of Asclepius were actual temples in Greek society. Uh, anybody could go there. They were their first free public medicine. And when you went to the temple, the treatment was really unique. The priests or priestesses would give you a drink. You would drink that drink and you would go to sleep. And then you would dream and have a really, really vivid dream. And then after that, you would wake up uh, and the, you would relate the dream to the priest and they would give you some kind of treatment. So um, Aristophanes imagined the god of wealth, whose name was Plutos, going to the temple of Asclepius because he was blind and he needed to see again. So he goes to the temple, he does the thing, and the priest uh, treat him with the ointment on his eyes. Now, you know, cannabis is very good for 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 uh, ocular diseases. And, uh, and when Plutos can see again, uh, which he does, uh, he goes around and he, he changes all of the rich people to poor people and all the <laughs> poor people to rich people because he figured he had it wrong when he was blind. <laughs> great insight, great vision. Oh, that is funny, man. <laughs> I thought that was funny too. It has the influence, just great literature, great philosophy. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's been around forever, ever. So the other thing I like about, about Aristophanes is the way that it, you know, captures this spirit of subversion of authority, which is you know, another one of the things that we see associated with cannabis through the years. And, and so I started thinking about um, all of the, the comedians who have really been some of the sharpest and fiercest social critics that we've seen, people who, who you know, really confronted injustice, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, um, uh, Richard Pryor, your brother, John. Uh, is, what do you think about that connection, apparent connection between comedy and, and, and subversion? What, what makes that happen? Well, the comedy from everyone you're talking about comes from there's a deepness of uh, of some type of trauma that's going on in their life. I mean, you know, you show me a really funny guy, and I'll show you a really uh, rough childhood. Um, but I think what what 
I think what happens with them is that it's just like all of us in our different ways, when you experience that euphoria of smoking or in the seventies, you know, I mean, sixties, uh, the, the uh, doors perception, you know, peyote and mescaline and LSD, you know, they open their, their minds up and they, you see the injustice in the world and, you know, the angriest guy is the one who had the most hope and they see hope around them and they get disillusioned. And then just luckily enough, they are, their minds are working really fast enough to be very satirical about it. You get to be seeing outside and comment. They're comment comics commenting on the world around us. And we all tie right into it. So, but also you can see, you know, you know, you, you smoke with a couple of friends and you start ripping, you come up with ideas because it's like, where did this come from? And then you start to work it into your act. Lenny Bruce was, you know, he was the jazz musician of comedy, man. He had a rhythm and a sense of social satire that was wicked, just wicked, you know, him and Pryor. I mean, George Carlin, I really believe, kind of, he kind of you know did a crossover. He got a larger audience because he had a, a really nice approach, you know, opposed to Pryor was right down the middle, right in your face, and so was Lenny Bruce. And uh, I think he had a great influence on comedy. I know on Saturday Night Live there was, you know, the Captain Jack strain was quite prevalent then, and that was a very creative strain. And I know thoughts like the coneheads the big thigh people i <laughs> must have come out of some collaboration and discussion under the influence of cannabis i just have to well it's interesting you mentioned that um I'm, uh, I'm i'm sure that's right having having been a viewer in those days um our viewers are really interested in uh in in those days could you just tell the captain jack story a bit well, you know, when I started this farm uh, by accident, I talked to Danny Ackroyd about it, and he told me that, well, Jimmy, if you're going to be growing uh, cannabis, uh, you should be uh, growing uh, Captain Jack's. And he introduced me to Captain Jack. I had met him before, but I never really spent time with him. And Captain Jack had a, a, a strain, a, a land race strain that he got from the bottom of the Kush Mountains in a village called Mazar Asharif. I can barely pronounce it. Um, he went there in 70, 71, and the villagers, the village was known for their hashish for hundreds of years along the Silk Road there. And uh, they presented them with some seeds, and he brought those seeds back and have been growing them from seed to flower ever since. But he also became the he doesn't like to use this phrase, the weed dealer, for Saturday Night Live in those days. He says, I was just kind of a backstage guy. But he had a very, it was a very potent smell. You know, it's, I think the beginning of that kind of skunk weed smell. And on Mondays and Tuesday nights, they spent all night writing. And the halls would fill with the Captain Jack smoke. And so they called Captain Jack the smell of SNL. I was just talking to Danny about it. He goes, oh, yeah, me and uh, Davis, uh, 
you know, you're up till five, six in the morning writing and you need something to keep that energy going. And, uh, and we came up with some unbelievable ideas that ended up on the air. So anyway, I, I'm growing that strain now. But uh, that definitely, I think, you know, Steve, I, I, I had smoked a, a joint with like six people in my backyard. You've been there. And before you know it, we were just popping and ripping like I visualized a writer's table. And we were just popping jokes and, you know, kind of lingering on top of each one, adding, 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 and extending it into like something you couldn't sit down and write. And I went, ah, I see how Captain Jack influenced these guys. This is a really creative, fun weed. So, yeah, that's, that's Captain Jack. Yeah, I, I've had an opportunity to taste the Captain Jack flowers when I visited your farm. And I agree with you. They are, um, they are fun and uplifting and energizing. Yeah. So what about your brother, John? What, what was his relationship with weed like? You know, I really believe that, you know, John was straight as an arrow. You know, 60s. He was middle linebacker, all state, all conference, and the most tackles of uh, in the high school. I mean, he had like a record. He was the thespian. He wore v neck sweaters, corduroy pants, and a collared shirt. He had that Dustin Hoffman hair, you know, from the graduate. He was a thespian. He was in the Outer Society. He was the homecoming king. Uh, and I believe that from playing football, now we know there's a thing called CTE. I believe that John really got his brain racked. And that being the middle linebacker, being 5'7", small, and he just would get in there. And I think he got his bell rung quite a bit, and they just go, what's the matter, Belushi? You got your bell rung? Get in there. And I think he seizured in front of me one time in our house. And, you know, he was always funny, so I thought he was being goofy, doing some physical, you know. But then I saw him on the floor, and I went, oh, this is not good. Boom, called the police, pulled his tongue out, gave him oxygen. Didn't know what it was. They did x-rays, did spinal taps, couldn't find out what it was. And then he graduated high school, went to college, smoked a joint, and I think he found his medicine. And unfortunately, back then, marijuana was still considered a drug, not a medicine. So I think all those drugs kind of came together in one group and just did them all. <clears throat> but I think it was to relieve that kind of uncontrolled behavior. So when uh, I, he was a, I think he was selling pot. I mean, he flunked out of college three times, Steve. <laughs> and he would always be coming back on the weekend from Wisconsin. And, and he, I think he had big bags of pot that he got at, you know, uh, uh, what was it called? Wisconsin, Wisconsin State. Um, Madison? Mad, uh, not Madison, Whitewater. <laughs> but I think he went to Madison. He got his, you know, 
And so I, you know, he was really into pot during that time. And he became SDS, yippee, white panther. <laughs> I was like, John. I remember him coming home after the Democratic convention and he, he had tear gas burns on his pants. And it was like, I'm, I watched it on TV. I was just this young, you know, I was like 15. I couldn't go, you know. And uh, the next day there was a picture in the paper of a Jeep, you know, army Jeep with the barbed wire in the front, you know, pushing kids up against a chain link fence. And it was on the cover of the newspaper. And John pointed on the picture just outside of the frame, Steve. That I'm right there. That's where I am. I said, what do you mean that's where you are? That's where I was, right there, right next to that. But you're not in the photo. No, no, but I'm right next to it. It's all bullshit, John. Come on. <laughs> it's too much. But, uh, yeah, he was a wild guy. He got, he became awakened by cannabis. And as far as him as a performer, Danny, did we talked about it the other day. Danny said, yeah, yeah, he would he'd get high and perform. Danny and I don't. We never let anything get between us and our performance because the performance is the high for us. Uh, now, it doesn't mean you don't take a little bit when you discuss and come up and write, but performance-wise, never, never, never did it. But I think John did. Actually, I heard a rumor that he was tripping on stage at Second City. It's like, how can you be doing LSD on stage improvising? I mean, I, he was a monster. He was so smart and funny. Apparently, he, he did it very, very well. He did it very, <laughs> very well. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the real downsides of Prohibition has been that there's a whole universe of people, and I count myself among them, who had cannabis been legal, had the other visionary plants, the mushrooms, the peyote, the other visionary substances been legal, I might never have come into contact with hard drugs like heroin or cocaine or speed. But because I was in the illegal milieu and I was selling cannabis, I ran into people all the time who had these other drugs. And it really just became a matter of time before we started trying them and, and doing them. So, yeah. I, you know, I could totally see how that happened with John. Um, yeah, and by the way, he wasn't really doing, I mean, I think he did the mescaline just like we did and the, the, the LSD. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that heroin and cocaine thing happened until that, that last period. I mean, I think his body was just naive to that, the, the potency of um, apparently what was on the street at the time was a thing called China White. And Bob Weir told me that he had actually said that to John at the backstage of the concert. He said, you know, if you're going to mess with this shit, be careful because there's some stuff on the street now that's really strong. And, you know, that they died. There were eight other overdoses in Orange County alone. So there was a really heavy, heavy drug out there. But I think at that point he was, I mean, I'm just speaking of my own thing, but I think at that point he was just, he felt invincible, you know. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the number one album, the number one TV show, and a number one movie out the same year. I mean, when did he hit that stat? I bet he, he loved the experiment because that ending was an experiment to him. It wasn't a – he was doing cocaine, that's for sure, but that, that mix was an experiment. Yeah, um, uh, certainly, you know, a, a tragedy, not just for your family, but for for our, our whole generation. You know, um, one of the... Yeah, that was the start of the awakening of the uh, drug addiction. I mean, 1982, he died in 1982, and that's the same year Betty Ford opened her clinic in Palm Springs. It was like there was really no... AA was a very quiet little thing that nobody really knew about. And then it became, then in the late 80s, it became popular. Everybody, it's like, uh, you know, you should go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and then we had, you know, politicians coming along and using that for their own, for their own devious uh, means. Um, I want to I keep talking about John a little bit more um, because we've gotten a lot of questions from our followers about the influence that he's had on you and your, your work in the cannabis sector. And, you know, like you, I lost a brother at a, at a young age. I was 11 years old when my brother well, it's just died. Stephen, it's, it's, somebody described it to me, is that when you lose a sibling in your family, then it's like throwing a hand grenade into a family dinner. And the shrapnel just rips people in different spots at the table and it collapses the family it's so hard to recover I, i'm so sorry about your brother at 11 years old i was 11 he was five yeah oh i think it's one of the reasons that i've you know that i've spent a lot of my life trying to help people who are in in kind of desperate situations um, prisoners you know, people who are suffering from illnesses i think that you know, my when my brother died, he 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 got a fever. My parents took him to the hospital, uh, and he never came back. And I, I didn't have an opportunity to try and help him or nurse him. So I know that 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 has influenced me. How has John influenced you? Well, sure, the same way as influenced you. I mean, but I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to have a death in your family that you don't have to tell anybody as you grow older until you trust somebody with that kind of vulnerability and, you know, insight and understanding who we are. In my situation, the whole world knew. And no matter where I went, you know, people were truly compassionate. And they were like, oh, so sorry you lost your brother. But you got to think of it from my point of view. You know, I, I see so many people in a day and I hear it all day, every day, every day, you know. So I was never able to hide the sorrow. It was always brought to me. So it's influenced me in so many ways. Uh, one way is that I, I found in my travels that people seek me out. When I do shows in different places in the country, uh, people come up afterwards and they just kind of, they stare at me a little bit and I go, okay. And I look at them, I go, you all right? And they tell me about their brother who died. 
their sister who died of a drug overdose, their brother who died of a car accident. The, 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 want to talk to somebody who understands what that shrapnel feels like. And so I went, okay, so this is one of my purposes is to be here, to be available to people with loss. And it just naturally turned into cannabis because I think cannabis really is therapeutic for that kind of trauma, that PTSD. I mean, you know, the number one fear in life is death. The number two fear in life is collapse of family. Family collapses from a death, a, a, a serious illness, you know, uh, um, divorce is traumatic, losing a big job. And we're all screaming inside, Steve. And those poor guys out on the street, or the poor guys in prison, they're screaming inside, and they lost, they've lost their management of the screaming. And there's a lot of us out here, children of, you know, adult children, alcoholics, that are screaming inside. Well, what do we do to manage it? Well, you take Xanax, you take Valium, you take Ambien to sleep, you drink within an inch of your life. You overexercise, you overwork, you gamble, sex addiction, it just keeps going. We use all these elements to manage our screaming that comes from a collapse of your family. And all I'm saying is that this John's influence in me has brought me all the way around to, yeah, I'm screaming. Everyone's screaming. Cannabis is the safest safest medicine that we can use. I microdose. I'm not like a, you know, it's just, that's my mission. And I believe today, if John was a pothead like you were, he'd be alive today like you, Steve. You know, and it was just accidental and tragic. And I have to learn from that tragedy. But it's also influenced me too, because this show, is based on this journey to find some peace in that trauma with John. So that element is in the, the show. That's why it's called Growing Belushi, not Growing Pot. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the show a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I, I've had an opportunity to actually participate a little bit in the... In the You're program. in it! I'm in it. Um, so what, what about that trip to Columbia? How did that play into the story with John? Well, you know, uh, well, first of all, let, let's keep thinking about this. I mean, I thought about it because Danny in the story sends me to Columbia to get these seeds. If I get these seeds, the Santa Monica gold, the Punta Rojos and the mango biche, he says in the show, if you can find a strain that has the legacy that the Blues Brothers, that matches the Blues Brothers legacy, I'll give you my license of the Blues Brothers to bring it. So we're going to Columbia. <laughs> so during the search of the seed, run into you, run into that wonderful 150,000 people on the street smoking and protesting. And it was just so gorgeous. Um, I went and started to, my, Chris, my cousin, kind of makes fun of me because I want to go see where Pablo died. I, I'm, 
plain, basically a typical American tourist. And through that travel of tracking down Pablo, I come to a realization that I have a fascination with him because he was tied to John. It's funny that Danny set me down there. And there was this journey about coming to peace about John. And so in the end of, you know, one of the episodes, I'm in a helicopter flying over the, the red zone, looking at the cocoa fields. And I look down at the cocoa fields and I say, geez, I want, you know, these cocoa fields, I mean, they're helping small farmers make a living, but these cocoa fields are not filled with cocoa, they're filled with tombstones. The amount of cocaine that came from these fields, I wonder if the cocaine in this field I'm looking at was in my brother when he died. And I just want to go down into that field and hold up that leaf and look at it and say, stop hurting families. And if we could convert, if we get Colombia, which is very capable of doing that, to convert those cocoa fields into cannabis fields, we could start healing people instead of killing them. Yeah, that so would be. John kind of looked like Pablo. John became an international figure at the same time Pablo was. They both had cocaine in common except for John never killed anybody Pablo did so you know there is this dramatic element of me growing as a young man as a man through that trip yeah I I um I I had an opportunity to see some of that footage and I think it's uh, it it's 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 moving it's it's um it's not quite what i was expecting to see in the show the on behalf of my friends in colombia though i got to push back a little bit on the idea that all that coca needs to be eradicated in fact if we had a whole plant medicine approach around the world that allowed it whole plant coca preparations to be provided to people not refined cocaine it would actually be quite a useful medicine and could continue to provide the small farmers in Colombia with some with some revenue. So the the other the other approach is is to say, look, the issue isn't the plant. None of the plants are really an issue. The issue is human beings who take the plants and and pull monomolecule isolates out of it at ridiculous levels of potency and turn something which is healing into something which is addictive. Um, so. Hey, that's not a pushback. That's that's a beautiful point of view, and um, I, I you you've just changed my mind about that because uh, that's right. It is a plant, and I mean, I, plant. I, yeah. When I was in Colombia, I I got a really really bad cold shortly after I arrived, and it was kind of cool in Bogota, and I had to speak uh, in twenty four hours, and I was just in miserable condition. And, uh, and somebody suggested that I choose some cocoa leaves, which wouldn't really have occurred to me, um, but I did. 
And it was just miraculous. Uh, you know, they gave me a little bit of a lift, a little bit of energy, but completely took away all the other cold symptoms. So um, I'm, a, I'm a believer in the power of medicinal coca. Yeah, but you said cocoa leaf, opposed to the refined cocaine that comes in, you know, baggies, and, you know. It's, a, it's just like that. They had little cocoa leaves they put in coffee and give you that little bit of a help you know you're right if it's used properly yeah yeah it's it's you know it's it's when us human beings start messing with the plants and uh, that that we start getting ourselves into into trouble i think um so we got uh, some other questions here from our followers let me um and this kind of kind of touches on on some of the other work that we're doing together from puff uh, from at puff and party no at puff and parley uh, what what's your stance on so many black and brown people still in prison for cannabis? Well, we talked about it earlier, but just to simplify, get them out. <laughs> it's enough. Stephen and I are, you know, I'm not saying I'm making a living as a farmer. But we're, you know, profiting in many ways. And people are buying it, selling it. People are getting healed by why are they still in jail? It's a nonviolent crime. And uh, it's it's time to bring attention to them. And Stephen, you're doing that with Mary Bailey, just bringing attention to this this problem. And this Michael Thompson, I'm very concerned about, that, that's uh, been in jail for 25 years. He's 65 years old and he's got, he's got COVID now. He's in the hospital. And and you said it, it's like being arrested for cannabis shouldn't be a death sentence. He could die. And I'm very upset about it. But so get on, get on this last prisoner project. Donate, write, write governors, write congressmen, write states attorneys. It's time. And, uh, and, and, and you have been, of course, one of the earliest and most uh, steadfast supporters of The Last Prisoner Project. Our very first fundraiser was held at your house and you now joined our advisory board. So um, we appreciate that very much. And, um, you know, this, is, this work is really a, a passion for me and I appreciate the support that you've- It's become a passion for me, Stevens. Thank you. You always kind of lead me to where I should be. <laughs> <laughs> so let me give you another one from our, from our viewers. Um, from at Canna Fun, Canna.Fun. Hello, I'm an inspiring cannabis farmer. After all the headaches, is it worth it? Well, it depends how result-oriented you are. Uh, I, I don't live on the results so much as much as the journey. It's like, in, you know, I, I got to tell you a story. So Robert De Niro said he never watches his movies. And when I was a young actor, I went, that is ridiculous. He's got to watch his movies. And no, because I did my work. I already experienced it. I don't need to experience the final product. So cannabis farming, I'm loving the work. I'm loving being in the ground. I'm loving, you know, trying nutrients, you know, growing ground cover that has great, 
uh, uh, ni uh, not nice. Uh, I'm a anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying growing the process. And these girls, these ladies, these plants have taken me on a, a journey, a journey to even meeting Stephen and being here today. And I've really enjoyed it. I did the acting journey for 40 years. And I still enjoy that. That's why I brought it together. So now I'm doing two things that I really like. Is it worth it? It's been worth it for me. Has it been financially worth it? Yeah, I probably make more money in comedy. <laughs> you probably make more money in comedy. Um, yes. Well, I'll answer that question too. Uh, I, I can tell you that no matter how much money you make or how much money you lose, there's deep satisfaction in growing cannabis. Just the act of doing it is a beautiful and joyous thing. So yes. for those of you who haven't done it yet, you know, definitely think about trying to grow your own cannabis. Lots of people believe that the very best cannabis is the cannabis that you grow yourself. So yeah, you're in this whole new, uh, new business now. Um, what, what has it been like for you, like engaging with the, with the legal cannabis industry? Well, uh, you know, I'm kind of a Midwest boy and, you know, I'm an actor and I take direction well from directors and the legalization in Oregon has been a wonderful process for me. Uh, the OLCC, you know, they're a government group that's, you know, overseeing it and making, you know, creating the rules and the compliances. Uh, I find them very reasonable in Oregon. And I, I consider them my partner. They gave me a license. They're trusting me. So I'm honoring them by being compliant. And when there is a problem, uh, they're open to discuss it. And actually, they change some of their rules because of the farmers that have had discussions with them. They want to know, too. So... In the state of Oregon, they've been great partners, you know. So the legalization in Oregon is, they're constantly learning, but they're constantly changing. Yeah, I think, I think that Oregon is one of the success stories in cannabis regulation in contrast to California, where, you know, very, very few legacy growers have been able to get licensed and participate in the legal economy. In Oregon, it seems that there's, there's a lot more growers who have been licensed and a lot more of them are people who, who have been growing cannabis for a long, long time. Long time, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about the, the industry? You know, I, I, for years, have been talking about how important it is that as we grow this cannabis industry, that we make it a new kind of industry, right? Not just like every other industry that's out there that's mistreating workers, that's polluting the, the world, that's manipulating consumers. But, um, but that we act uh, according to a higher standard. How do you, how do you think that the industry itself is doing living up to that expectation? Um, you know, again, I can speak to Oregon and uh, I think for the most part, I, I think we're on that track. People who have generosity and spirit, I mean, they could be competitive uh, and there's some, you know, underhanded players here and there that do do the manipulation. And, but, you know, I, I, I have a harvest party and I have about 500 people all in the cannabis business there. And uh, this guy uh, who 
from the Cattlemen's Association. He served the the beef, and you know he's farmer or he's a regular guy and he sees all these kind of hippies and anyway he served all 400 people and he said you know Jim I've been doing this for a long time this is the nicest group of people that I've ever worked with and it was a fun party there's no violence there's no so the people in the industry are really generous spirited and as they move into the industry hopefully they'll keep it uh, I can't speak to the corporate level. They're they're serving a different god. They're serving, you know, shareholders and investors, and they got their own pressure. But I'm a small boutique farmer, so I have a little more control over who I do business with. I mean, I'm only in 40, 50 dispensaries in Oregon. When there's 500, I don't want to be in all of them. I want to be in 10% that are partners, that are good people, and they deliver honesty, ethics, and medicine, and want to have fun together, collaborating. So I, I've had good experience. Well, let me, let me just draw this out a little bit, because I think you just mentioned something that's, that's important uh, for our audience to think about. There's a lot of different metrics for success in the world and a lot of different metrics for success in the cannabis industry. One of those metrics is how much money you make, how big you grow your company. But there's a trade-off that's involved when you take that path. And the trade-off is that whenever you start growing something bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more people come involved, more investors become involved, and it becomes more and more difficult to hold true to your original vision compromises become necessary. So I encourage everybody who's in the industry now, who's thinking about that scaling up, who's um, maybe thinking about not scaling up to consider that range of, of choices, right? That yes, you know, there's going to be fabulous fortunes that are, that are made with cannabis. But I think that the greatest reward that any of us are going to have at the end of the 20 or 30 years that it's going to take us to, to start building this industry into a global force is being able to look behind us and say, you know what, we've built something here that we can be really proud of. We've built an industry yeah. that has diversity, that has, that's, takes care of the land that, that we are occupying, um, that treats the communities that we're part of as, as, as important stakeholders. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. And by the way, it's not similar to acting in the sense that, you know, when I started off in the theater improvising, making $175 a week, it was just a creative boom for me as a person. And you create and you create. And then as your career goes on, I mean, I had this discussion with Discovery the other day. You know, the standards and practices wanted to cut this one thing out and the Discovery wanted to do this. And I said, you know, it's a shame, you know, since 1975 or the late 70s, the early filmmakers and the early studio owners, the presidents like Frank Yablons at Paramount who made The Godfather and, uh, you know, all, all these great movies. Then when the accountants and the investors and the lawyers started taking over these studios, I said for decades they've been trying to take data and impose it on creativity. And so the fight is always trying to keep your vision and passion and emotion in these pieces 
without them going, well, you know, the stats tell us that the demo doesn't like, a, you know, same, same thing. I mean, it's, it's that you've got to maintain it. And the only way you can maintain it is you have some leverage. So I want this show to be a hit so I can have some leverage in, more leverage in what we put in the show and lead the audience and lead the people watching to a better understanding, a higher place. So let's, let's drill down on that uh, a little bit. What are, you know, what are some of the takeaways that you, that you really hope that the audience gets out of the show? Well, it's funny. You know, uh, Chris, my cousin, Chris and I are very funny. Going through Colombia, he was so scared, you know, it's such a sweet country. People are so nice. It was very safe. Um, so it's funny. Uh, I wanted to take away that this is safe, that the people that don't understand it or are frightened of it. Here's a little knowledge so you can understand that we're growing this like we're, you would grow tomatoes or corn, but with even more love and more care. It's saved from pesticides. It's tested. I talk about dosing, microdosing, the microdosing edibles, uh, vape pens, uh, um, flour for those who are just beginning. So safety, education, so people can embrace it even if they don't want to use it. They understand it. They're not ignorant to it comedy and then also there's a whole personal journey on this this show about uh, dealing with the trauma that I experienced in my life from my brother and there's a resolve that comes in the show that was inspired by growing cannabis and how this plant has led me like you to where I'm supposed to be so. yeah um, uh, I wonder um, uh, whether you have uh, any kind of advice as you've been going through this uh, adventure uh, with cannabis. Have you, you know, have you had experiences where you've run into people that were that were blinded by stigma? None. I don't. <laughs> Everybody. I don't. I only run into curiosity. Stephen, I, I, I was sitting at a table with. My mother-in-law, who's 80, her boyfriend, who's 84, another couple was 83 and 80, another one was 79, 82, and me, because my wife was out of town. My mother-in-law thought maybe I was lonely. And I was like, no, I kind of like the night by myself, but I'll come over. Thank you so much. <laughs> and the subject came up, what I was doing. Now, these are people that watch Fox News 24-7, by the way, really loud. And all they wanted to know was about the healing benefits of it. They want, you know, my hand hurts. I can't go up. My shoulder hurts here. You know, I get a little low during the day. And the one woman goes, I want the stuff that makes you feel good. And I literally went home. I was like a pharmacist. I literally went home and got some CBD salve and some oil, got them some gummies. And I gave it to them. And now they call me all the time. And I'm like, there's a dispensary you can go to. I'm not a dealer. You know? So 
even the most conservative people are curious. That's why I believe this show, Growing Belushi, I think I have an audience that was, you know, on according to Jim, that was both red and blue. And I want to lead them in what we all have in common. And that is how to manage the screaming in a healthy way, whether it's the pain, whether it's the anxiety, whether it's the trauma, you know. So I, that's, my, that's my mission, is to bring people together, follow the plan. Well, well, you know, that's one of the things that really excites me about the show is that I think that you're going to get a lot of viewers who have never, never used cannabis themselves, who maybe have never even really considered using cannabis themselves. Um, and I'm sure even people who are opposed to the legalization of cannabis, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty powerfully destigmatizing and, and educational for, for a lot of people. And it's really you know, of, of all the cannabis uh, entertainment that we've seen emerge in recent years, I think your show is going to be recognized for having a higher level of, of, of actual informational, educational content than, than anything that I've seen thus far. So really, really looking forward to, to, that, to that release. Thank um, you very much, Stephen. Thank you. And hearing that from you means a lot to me. Thank you. And, and you know, I was skeptical in the beginning. Um, I remember our first meeting. Oh yeah, you turned your head. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Hey, I'd like to get in the cannabis business," you know. And I was and in your eyes, was, "Oh, another celebrity who wanted to make money." <clears throat> and then I started talking to you about Blues Brothers and that it's a forty-year brand and represents music, mischievousness, and a mission from God. There's real depth to it. And then you turned your head and you went, would you like to have lunch sometime? And I said, I'd love to. And I met you in Oakland. We had a great wiener schnitzel. What was it? Schnitzel, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was when I was yeah. still eating meat. Yeah. Right. Me too. I don't eat meat anymore either. Right. Right. But, uh, and you've been a guiding force or a mentor in, in this industry ever since. So for me, thank you. Yeah, well, it's it's been a it's been a great relationship. Um, uh, you've been so open to learning and so eager to learn, and I think that you know that that what I wanted to be sure of was that there really was a real passion, that there really was a real connection to the plant, because we do see just an awful lot of people coming into the legal cannabis industry now, whose really only desire is to make as much money as they can, and I've got no problem with people making money. But I find that a lot of the people who are creating brands are people who don't even really know much about cannabis. And suddenly they're in a position to educate millions of people and a lot of them blow it. So, so I was wary. Um, I was wary when, when, when we first met. But over the, over the course of time, you've really proven to me your genuine roots. Um, the farm well, thank you. had an opportunity to visit, <laughs> right? Uh, what a beautiful spot you have there. Um, on the farm. Yeah. That's beautiful, isn't it? On the Rogue River. It's and, a spiritual little spot. And tell, talk about, there's a, there's a hill across the other side of the river that has a story to it, isn't there? Well, uh, there's a table rock, it's called. It's a really beautiful plateaued cliff. And it comes right uh, almost down to the river. And then on this side is Mount McLaughlin. And my farm is right between these two 
monoliths of spirituality. I mean, the Native Americans in Southern Oregon, they, this is where they were. Water. Uh, actually, the, the uh, Table Rock, there's a spot on Table Rock. The most holy spot is where the Native Americans made the deal with the white man. And the white man just broke it. So, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. And then they slowly ran them out to Eastern Oregon. There's a lot of sadness around what they did to the Native Americans in that area. But I have a sweat lodge right between the two. And I bring, you know, I'm like do a little shaman light, you know, and I, we do these ceremonial sweats there on the property and with the eagle spirit. It's just a gorgeous, beautiful place. And of course the hope is that these beautiful flowers that you're growing there will spread uh, go into people's minds, go into people's hearts, and uh, help us as a species avoid the kind of horrible, destructive madness that's been perpetrated on, on indigenous people and people of color uh, yes. all around the world. Right? So that's that's one of the one of the reasons that I've dedicated my life to cannabis is that I think that it can that it can and it will and that it does play that role. Yeah. So I've been asking you a lot of questions. Is there is there anything I've asked you that, that you want to talk about that I didn't ask you? No, we hit it all. Actually, I, I don't think I've ever gone that deep about John before. That, you know, uh, that, no, I think you've asked everything. Um, you know, about the, the farm, you know, we, we take the water from the Rogue River, which is almost a perfect pH, and the plants I play music for them. In the morning, I play Marvin Gaye, and, and Teddy Pendergrass, little baby making music. And then, you know, after they're vegging, I start in the afternoon, I start playing reggae and then a little blues in the afternoon, some funk. And then when I harvest, we play gospel music. So the girls know they're going into the light, the white light, and to go out to heal. I mean, I just have a ball. <laughs> I have a ball. That's great. I'm so, so glad that you are and, uh, and so looking forward to the show, which again, for our viewers, will be debuting the very first show it is going to be on the Discovery Channel. It will be August 19th. It will be on at 10 p.m. So please make sure to, to check it out. Um, which episode am I in? You're in the, you're in the, uh, Hey, I'm in one of second them. Episode. Go check them all out. <laughs> no, no, you're in the second episode. All right. Because the second episode is when Danny sends us uh, to Columbia. And then you're also, we, we, you know, we did an interview with you, and we've used your quotes in places too. So, But mainly in the second episode. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to my cameo. And uh, yes. I wish you all the luck in the world with the show. And, and Thank you, my friend. Uh, us getting together uh, sometime uh, um, as soon as it's safe to move around again. I love that, Stephen. I enjoy your company so much. Likewise. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, I will be tuning in for sure, and I'll give you a holler after I watch the show. Please do. All right. All right. So, Thank uh, you, everyone. Thanks for listening, and, and uh, please support The Last Prisoner's Project and, of course, Growing Belushi on Discovery. Thanks for tuning in, friends. I think we struck some pretty deep chords in this little conversation about cannabis and laughter. 
the length of the association, how far back it goes. The ancient Greeks, the cradle of Western civilization, the inventors of democracy, the way they had cannabis woven into their religion and into their medicine. This other association between cannabis and truth-telling or cannabis and subversion, thinking about people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and John Belushi. And what is this? What are all these threads? I think, I think they spring out of this common source, which is the plant itself, how she teaches us to embrace joy and humor, to laugh, even in times when things are really, really dark, and the way that she lights up this desire for freedom, the way that she inevitably brings us into conflict with forces and sources that would take away our freedom. I know that some of you are in difficult circumstances tonight. Maybe you have to hide your cannabis use. Maybe you've been arrested. Maybe you're in prison right now. But know this, that the truth will be told, that we are coming, that it's getting closer and closer every single day. You are not forgotten. We are one people. There are hundreds of millions of us all around this world, and we will not rest, and we will not stop until every single one of us is free.